Before I go into the message, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as I ask for the Lord to continually guide me and give honor to him through this message. Gracious Father in heaven, it is indeed not only a privilege, but a tremendous responsibility to even open my mouth and presume to speak in your behalf. And so I pray now, Lord, that you'll send your Holy Spirit to take these words and fill them with wisdom and understanding that those who receive it, that it will find in them fertile soil in the areas of their lives that this message addresses. I pray that you will give us the wisdom in these changing times to be recalibrated, to not lose focus on the mission that is at hand for this church. And may in the end, we will be able to meet the man in the middle without any reticence, without any hesitation, but with great joy knowing that we have lived to uplift and honor him, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I chose the King James Version for this scripture because as I was reading earlier this week, it's been a very busy week for us. We were in New York City performing a funeral. A dear extended member of my wife's brother's wife's family, her sister passed away, and we were invited to perform that service in New York City. And it brought honor to the Lord because many of them didn't have a pastor, and they said, we've known you for decades, and we'd like you to be the one. But throughout the years, I have been the kind of person that I, I like to always furnish my mind with knowledge. But I've since reading the book of Proverbs, I've come to understand that knowledge is nothing without wisdom. You can have a whole lot of head knowledge, but if the Lord doesn't take that knowledge and, and take it from your head to your heart, and then give you direction as to know what to do with it, you might know a lot, but do a little. So I've changed my tune. Knowledge is not power. Wisdom is power. But the power does not reside in the wisdom of men, because the wisdom of men is foolishness to God. So I've been praying, Lord, give me wisdom in this changing generation. 2020, what can we say about 2020? I think a good way to just use two words, have mercy. That's Bob's phrase, have mercy. I want to join Bob in the declaration. We need mercy more than anything else in 2020. To make it through 2020, to make it down to December, and to, and to put our toe into 2021 is going to be a feat that we're going to appreciate this time more than at other times, because what a challenging year 2020 continues to be. So as I was reading, I have a subscription to a magazine called Christianity Today. It's one of the most popular Christian magazine. It, it brings to the forefront the opinions, the theological views, the issues from the Christian perspective of multiple denominations. And so if you really want to know what's taking place outside of the Adventist church, you would subscribe to Christianity Today. They address all the issues 
regardless of the denomination, if you submit a story to Christianity today, they most likely, if it's according to their standards, would publish it. And I had that subscription for many years, and after I left California, I didn't renew it. But then recently, I decided to renew it because it's always interesting to find out what's happening over the fence. How is the world thinking? And a tremendous article that I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to share a number of quotations from different contributors to that article and a number of articles that will be included in the message today. Taking an overview of 2020, religiously, politically, socially, the only, op the only part of it that is not addressed is the economic portion of 2020. Religiously, socially, and, um, and what's the next one? I said it just a moment ago, but that shows you something else is amazing about 2020, shorter memory span. <laughs> Social, mental, spiritual. All those aspects of it are addressed in this article. And it amazes me that as I'm reading this article in the airport, reading it on the plane, re reading it again on the way back home, and then reading it again yesterday, it is interesting to see how the world as it relates to the United States, is being viewed from all those religious components and directions and perspectives. And this scripture that I'm going to read again to you became a very interesting catapult, if I could use a scripture to, to summarize that, that, that story in that article. I would say this scripture most likely reveals the heart of that article. And I'm going to read it one more time. Matthew 27, verse 37 and 38. This is about the crucifixion of Jesus. And when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, the Bible says, and set over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him. How many thieves? Two. <laughs> the, Lord, the Lord tapped me on my forehead with this scripture, Terry. One on the right hand, <laughs> the other on the left. I'm going to leave it there. Wait, wait for me, Ryan. It's coming. Now that... Polling, voting, and election rhetoric is beginning to fade from view. As your pastor, I find it imperative to reach into the hearts of those that are listening to me today. If I preach this message prior to election day, some would suggest that the purpose of it is to influence their vote. That's something I never want to do. As a citizen of this great United States, quote, United States, it is not my given right as a citizen or as a preacher, especially as a Seventh-day Adventist minister, to tell you how to vote and what to vote for. 
That's your right. But that should not be the reason that a wall goes up between you and me. So I want to say at the very outset, this message is not about the candidates. It's not about their political platform. It's not about their election rhetoric, their campaign slogans, nor the election results, whatever it may be, whatever it may be. This message has one purpose in mind. And I told you a moment ago, it's going to address two questions. Who are we? And where do we, what do we do from here? Where do we go from, from here? If nothing else, 2020 has taught me one amazing lesson. Nothing is predictable. <laughs> Could that be the understatement of the day? Nothing is predictable. Because ours is the generation of distraction and polarization. How many storms have we had in the Gulf states? The Gulf states has something that's synonymous to every citizen in the United States. The Gulf states and the citizens of our nation alike are being confronted by winds of strife. And as soon as one storm subsides, what happens? Another storm is on the way. This has been one of the most active hurricane seasons that we have known in, I think the meteorologist said, they can't recall how many times we've had a hurricane season like this. Well, that's 2020. How many hurricanes have we had in 2020 outside of the weather? Huh. Nothing about 2020 has been predictable. But storms, as intense or mild as they may be, they reveal two things. The frailty of our anchor or the firmness of our faith. I'm going to say that again. A storm has two end results. It reveals the frailty of our anchor or the firmness of our faith. When the, when the hurricane hit down in the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas, where my brother and family live, my brother's 29-foot boat, he still doesn't know where it is. It's somewhere out there in the Caribbean Ocean. It was, it, the anchor wasn't strong enough. That's why the songwriter says, will your anchor hold? And another songwriter said, we have an anchor that keeps the, sto the soul steadfast and sure, right, Rosemary? While the billows roll, anchored to the rock that what? Will not move, grounded firm and sure in the Savior's love. We're living in stormy times. It reveals the frailty of our anchor or the firmness of our faith. And we find in the book Christian Service this very instrumental quotation from the servant of the Lord, Ellen White. She says, speaking to the times, the calamities by land and sea, the unsettled state of society, the alarms of war are portentous, meaning they're everywhere. You can hear them in whatever direction you turn. They forecast approaching events of the greatest magnitude. Our world, if this is any indication of what's coming in the future, brethren, get your anchors checked. Make sure the ropes that tie you to that anchor is not rotting. Make sure that you are ready for the, for the intensifying 
of the winds of strife. Because this generation, another thing I learned about 2020, this generation is not the generation of neutrality. Everyone in 2020 was on one side or the other. People either hated COVID or they tolerated COVID. People hated masks or they tolerated masks. It was hard to find anybody in the middle. It was hard to find that wet noodle. Everybody was a a spaghetti or a macaroni. There was no third category. And people were boisterous about it. Some people said it's a hoax. Others say it's a medical issue. And all around the world, it was a medical issue, except here in the United States, it was a political issue. 2020. What a nation. In 2020, there was no middle ground. In 2020, in America, there were no neutral places. Everybody, everybody, Cynthia was on one side or the other. Everybody decided, I'm over here, I'm over there. (laughs) One on the left, one on the left, one on the right. We are living amidst a society. Let me get even deeper now. We are living amidst a society of hatred and cultural bias. 2020 revealed that. It's like years ago when my wife and I were raising our niece when we lived in California in the Bay Area. We would say to her, clean up the kitchen. And to our amazement, she'd clean up the kitchen really quickly. And we go to the kitchen and say, she swept the floor everywhere. It's good. Until one day we pulled the fridge out, the refrigerator, and the dust was under the refrigerator. It wasn't gone. It was just hidden. 2020 was the refrigerator moving year. And we saw that the dust of all of our biases and angers were just hidden under the refrigerator. And the politicians that we had as leaders in our nation removed the refrigerator. The same niece, we would say, go up and clean your room out. She'd have that thing done in seven minutes. And we'd go and we'd say, well, if you could do it that fast, why don't you always do it? My wife says, open the closet. And when she opened the closet, thank the Lord it wasn't snow, it was an avalanche. We live in a closet opening year. The stuff that we were dealing with wasn't gone, it was just in the closet. And somebody opened the closet. What a year. No middle ground, no neutral places. This society of hatred and cultural bias reminds me that The final strokes on the canvas of the end times reveal an ominous future. You know, when artists there in in Times Square, we had a chance to go to Times Square. For the very first time, I saw Times Square in New York, a way I've never seen it before. You can actually walk and not even touch a person's elbow, even if you tried to. It's ominous, eerie, strange. Look like downtown Thompsonville. Nobody outside. Ominous. But there are the artists. New York was still in a very limping sort of a way, trying to keep the energy going. But, oh, when I say limping, it really was limping. We drove down streets, and I took video. I put my phone on my dashboard and kept it there by a mount. And I'm driving down 42nd Street and down another avenue and down another avenue and there's no cars for seven, eight blocks. 
No vehicles. I don't have to dodge anything. In New York City. So the artists of the end times are drawing the picture, and as the picture begins to come into view, it's showing that we have an ominous, ominous future ahead of us. The servant of the Lord in that very same book, Christian Service, but now page 53 in paragraph 3, notice what she says. She describes this generation with amazing brushstrokes. She says, the spirit of anarchy is permeating all nations, and the outbreaks that from time to time excite the horror of the world are but indications, get this, of the pent-up fires of passion and lawlessness that having once escaped control will fill the earth with woe and desolation. The picture which inspiration has given of the antediluvian world represents too truly the condition to which modern society is fast hastening. We're getting just like them. What happened in their days? They were only evil continually, and violence filled the earth. This generation, spiritual darkness is invading the church as it flows in from the world. Scriptural ignorance has driven Christians to seek power from other sources. I'm always amazed when I meet a Christian that says, that doesn't apply any longer. And when they push a certain portion of the Bible aside, it increases their spiritual ignorance. So when you are ignorant in Scripture, you all of a sudden begin to seek the power from other sources because there's power in God's Word, but you can't find power in God's Word when you push the power bank aside. Spiritual ignorance is driving Christians to seek power from other sources. And then you have the other condition. Professed Christians are being converted by the agenda of the world. Lord have mercy. This year, I have seen Christianity in a way that is ashamed to say to a person in the world, we want you to join our church. And not speaking of Thompsonville in particular, but if worldlings look at the way that Christians behaved in the media and in the circles and on the internet and on Facebook and in they would have very, or they would have a list of reasons why I'll never want to become one of them. God's word is being set aside in favor of human theories and speculation. When you turn off the light, you have no choice. You're in the dark. Professed ministers are rejecting major portions of scripture as non-applicable. Wish I can tell you how many times people said I'm a New Testament Christian which simply means another phrase for, I'm really ignorant. No apologies to follow. But not a surprise, because after rejecting Jesus, the Jewish leaders, look at the generation, after rejecting Jesus, Jesus, the Jewish leaders formed an alliance with papal Rome. When you follow the cadence of history, you'll discover that the devil saw that, and, and during the Dark Ages, he took his time to merge religion and politics together. And today, Christian leaders that reject the truth are now forming an alliance with papal Rome. The more things change, the more they stay the same. 
as it was in the days of Jesus. Political leaders are more concerned about gratifying the desires of the crowd. I want to say that again. When a Christian leader is more concerned about how the crowd reacts than how God's heart is moved, something is wrong. I want to say what the crowd want to hear. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I want to pander to the crowd. That is the kind of Christianity that is unfolding before our world today. I want to, I want to do what the crowd wants me to do. But politicians really haven't changed. You read Mark chapter 15, verse 15. It's the old stuff just resurfaced. You find in Mark 15, 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. I cannot imagine being the man that whipped Jesus. In the resurrection. Good to see you again. Remember, you hit me. Wanting to gratify the crowd. That is the environment developing in the world today. Wanting to gratify the crowd. We are not called to gratify the crowd. We are called to gratify the heart of Christ. But so many people are playing to the crowd. But even more diabolical than what Pilate did are the desires of people that once claimed to be connected to God. Luke reveals that condition. Luke chapter 23, verse 20 and 21, shows the counterpart to what the politician did. It shows now what the, the one claiming to know God decided to do instead. Pilate, it says... Therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. He's trying to get them to say that Jesus, like he has said, he's innocent. He should not be crucified. But they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And brethren, today, today, Jesus is being crucified again. And how ironic it is that the crowd shouting for his demise is still religious. The display of Christianity today would say to the drunkard, to the drug abuser, you're better off being an addict than being a Christian. If a person that's inoculated by alcohol can say to me in a bar, come on and have a drink with me, then we, when we, when we run into a Christian and the only blowback we get is, you don't believe what I believe, therefore my number one aim is to oppose everything you stand for. It's amazing that alcoholics sometimes could be more united than people claiming to know Jesus. That article was amazing. That magazine article pulled me by the ears. Don't say it. And spoke to my heart. The president and CEO of Christianity Today in the November 2020 issue on page 9, his name is Timothy Darmapol. Very, very flowing name. He said about America, he says, Americans will remember 2020 as a year in which 
our union of states felt far more fragile than we had imagined it to be. In one recent survey, 80% of American voters said the country is, say it with me, out of control. The once rich fabric that weaves us together is now thin, strained, and splitting. Christians. Christians. Moral majority. He also pointed out that the temporary things that have eclipsed the Christian church, the temporary things have eclipsed the permanent mission of the Christian church. This article is amazing. He said the church has become the, the butt of the jokes. They have been seen as less credible than a used car salesman. And what he just pointed out, he said, the, the more critical observation is that the statement just made is true about what's happening in the Christian circles today. That's why more than ever before, brethren, we've got to be on our P's and Q's. Said another way, we've got to have on the whole armor of God. We cannot allow ourselves to get on the conveyor belt of compromise and just sit there as our destiny is determined by the direction of a conveyor belt that's heading toward the cliff of the inevitable demise of the values of the character of Christ. In that same article, another editor said by the name of Daniel Silman, he wrote in the November 20 issue, page 14, in an article, when the pews are polarized, was the title of the article. When the pews are polarized, he said this, the problem is not that people in the church disagree about who to vote for. The problem is not that people get angry, shoot fiery emails to the pastor, and get into bruising fights with other church members on Facebook, though that does happen. <laughs> he says, and really, the problem is not even that some things are suddenly, intensely political. The problem of polarization according to the pastors of purple churches, what color churches did I say? Purple, remember that. Purple churches struggling to minister to red Republicans and blue Democrats during another divisive election is that people stop fighting. Notice he says the problem is they stop fighting, but look at what else happens. He says they part ways and they sort themselves by political preference. Polarization makes it seem like unity in Christ can only come after political unity. Now you see why I couldn't preach this before the election. Polarization, he said, makes it seem like partisanship is stronger than the gospel. Lord, have mercy. When politics become your God, you crucify Jesus afresh. Another contributor to the article, October 30th, 2020, by name of Bonnie Christian. Don't forget purple now. I'm going to come back to that. Bonnie Christian, she's one of the editorial contributors. She wrote an article entitled, The Civil War of the Heart. 
What in a classic title. The Civil War is over, but it's not in the heart. You should have seen it in America. If you missed it, you were sleeping for the last 11 months. She says, speaking to a gentleman that called in, she asked him about why he voted the way he did. And he said, and I quote, his reason for voting for his preferred candidate, get this, has nothing to do with the policy considerations. He responded, he'll stick with his pick to cause irritation and anger for voters on the other side. <laughs> That's a Christian, by the way. That's not a person in the world. I'm only going to vote this way to irritate those on the other side. I want to anger them. That's the kind of world we're living in today. I want to anger them. I want to make them mad. Early in the article, she points out that the church has been seduced in abandoning the greater kingdom for the lesser kingdom. She said, that's what's happening to the church today. It's abandoning the greater kingdom for the lesser kingdom. And what they fail to realize is every present that comes, there's another one in line and another one in line and another one in line. Just in case you miss it, there's only one Lord, but we're up to 45 or 46 presidents. There's only one Lord. Come on, somebody. And nobody's going to, nobody, Gary, is going to unseat him. Because his election is sure. This magazine, here was the cover of the article here. At Purple Churches, pastors struggle with polarized congregations. Struggle with polarized congregations. One of them asked, he said, how can Christian values and hatred share the same platform? But amazing, what's amazing more than amazing is this, that nobody's saying that Christians should not, let me rephrase that, nobody's saying that Christians should reflect Christ. Now, while that's a blanket statement, what I mean by that is if you are a Christian and you run on a Christian platform, are you not thinking your responsibility to reflect the values of Christ? Jesus said that to the Pharisees, but we pay tithe and mint and anise. He said, I'm glad you do that, but you've forgotten the weightier matters. Like, what about justice and mercy? And those are values missing in the Christianity of 2020. This, arg this article, man, the whole magazine was just off the chain. Ask the young people what that means. Another doctor Another teacher by the name of Donald McGarvin, a teacher at Fuller Theological Seminary, he contributed to the article, and he said these words. Donald McGarvin at Fuller Theological Seminary he, in the 1970s and 80s, he used a principle called homogeneous unit principle, which said that people should be able to convert to Christianity and join a church without having to cross too many barriers of race, class, caste, language, or even politics. Amen, somebody. I should be able to come into the church and not check a blue box or a red box. I should be able to come to church and not fear that I'm from Mexico. Or maybe from the Middle East. 
or maybe from Africa. Whatever happened to America, bring us your tithe and your poor. One nation under God, who, calm down, who said that any one race outside of the native Indians can claim this country as their own? My folk came from somewhere else. One part of me came from Europe, the other part from the Philippines, the other part from Africa, and one quarter of me came from the Blackfoot tribe of Indians in Virginia. I'm all four colors. Pick one. You've got to like at least one of them. <laughs> I'm one nation under God, indivisible, and I'm preaching in the Midwest, good old southern Illinois. Christians have forgotten the anthem of the apostles when they proclaimed with certainty in Acts 17, 26. And he, speaking of Christ, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. How many nations? Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. My kettle has been on the stove for a long time. But I waited till after the election to start whistling. You know when the, when the water gets hot and you can hear from the bedroom, the tea kettle, it's been on the fire for a long time. But I want to make sure that as I communicate this, that the purpose of this, once again, is to ask and answer the questions, who are we and where do we go and what do we do from here on out? You see, the gospel is not a partisan message. It's a bipartisan message. Revelation 14, verse 6 makes it clear. That's why I'm so committed to the three angels' messages. The Bible says in Revelation 14, verse 6, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what kind of gospel? Everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on earth, on the earth to every what? Nation, tribe, tongue, and people. One of the pastors said, if I communicate to the community in which I live that this is a red church or that this is a blue church or that this is a conservative church or that this is a liberal church. He says, I've just said to those who don't fit in that category, you're not welcomed here. But in the article, it says, evangelicals have said, we are comfortable with that. You don't belong here. And quoting what Pastor Chris Rhea, a female pastor of the Christian Reformed Church in South Bend, Indiana, listen to what she said. Because she did not agree with the other pastor that said the church, you should be able to join the church and no matter where you come from, listen to what she said. She says, I think a church ought to be solidly purple. You know what that means? That means if you're here, you must, we all must agree on the same thing. And if you don't, then you're not solidly purple. It's almost like a tongue-in-cheek. It's almost like an ironic statement because later on, you might say, wait a minute, the early part of the statement doesn't match the latter part of the statement. Listen to what it further says. I think a church should be solidly purple. The color of Christ. 
Nothing wrong with that. And then she goes on to say, pastor of the Church of the Savior, a Christian Reformed Church in South Bend, Indiana. She says, and I, I appreciate this, our identity should be in Jesus, not in anything else, she said. Our political persuasion should not be our primary identity. <laughs> so we meet people, you know, in 20, we meet people, they used to say, instead of saying, where are you from? They said, what are you? What do you mean? Are you conservative or liberal? They used to ask me where I'm from. But it's now, what are you? The article continues to unfold with some amazing observations. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the reasons why it's becoming less and less attractive to the world is because it has been labeled to fit into a certain segment of society. And the church is almost saying, as has been the experience of my wife and I in Heritage, we traveled during the time of, of the major elections in 1984. I remember that very, very well. And we went to churches and we saw flies in the foyer, says your vote for this candidate is a vote against God or your vote to support this. is a, It was amazingly divisive. And pastors even said, if you're a member of this church, this is who you must vote for. Sunday churches. Sunday churches. Blow me, blew us away. I remember Pat Robertson saying, that God told him he was going to be the next president. And as I was sitting in the back of the bus, driving into Orlando, Florida at the time, I yelled, no, he didn't. And those who embraced him said, how can you say that? I said, you wait and see. He's not even going to make the primaries. When you read the Bible, God doesn't tell folk they're going to be the next president. We still have something called choice. It's called a vote. And God is not into political partisanship or bipartisanship. He said to his disciples, don't forget, my kingdom is not of this world. I got a different kingdom where taxes are not even levied against his citizen. Amen, somebody. We don't have to shut the gates because we can trust everybody that walks around in the city. You don't get a water bill. The fruit are abundant. And by the way, the Bible says the fruit are for the healing of the nation. I looked into that Greek context the earlier, and I discovered why would we need fruit for the healing of the nations when there's nobody that's going to be sick? And I discovered it's not for the healing of the nations. It's for the reunification of the nations. Because down here we are so divided, just like it happened at the Tower of Babel. Division permeated the world ever since the entrance of sin. But God said, when you get to the tree of life, it doesn't matter where you're from, what you believe, what your national origin is. You are under one blood and you got on the white robe of the righteousness of Christ. He says, enjoy the mangoes. Here's a brother that was from Africa, another one from Europe, another one from Asia, another from, from the Caribbean. Get together and say, what is it like to eat a mango at the tree of life? But down here... Amazing. Pastor Glenn Elliott, Panto Church in Tucson, Arizona. He contributed. He said, demographic diversity creates opportunities for outreach. He said, we ought to look at the crowds in diversity. When people are convicted that Christian means conservative, that limits evangelism to conservatives, according to Elliott. If I say this is a right-wing Republican church, well, that's who comes, he says. 
But he goes on to say, we want to reach lost people. Can I get an amen? Not just lost people of a certain segment. I want to reach anyone who doesn't know Jesus. Calibration. It's time for calibration. It's time to put all that. You put the word you want aside and grab onto the mission of Jesus again. What do you say, Terry? What did Jesus say his mission is? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. And by the way, Jesus had more fun spending time with sinners than with religious folk. He could talk to them because they saw their sin. He had a hard time with the Pharisees, he says, because you say you could see, then your sin remain. I can't do a thing for you. If you were sick, then I could be your physician. But since you say you're not sick... I can't help you. He couldn't do anything for them. And all the way to the very end of the Bible, the mission of Christ is clear. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride says what? Come. And let him who hears say what? Come. And let him who thirsts do what? Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life. How? Freely. No charge. No charge. You love Jesus? Come on. You want to be saved? Come on. As a church, we have the highest privilege, the highest privilege to share the gospel with those that oppose what the Bible teach. I like to meet people that don't believe what I believe. I like to become their friends. I like to meet people that don't necessarily agree with me I say, I want to see you again. I take their names down on Walmart. Wherever we meet, in the tire section or the food section. And I know that God is going to take that relationship to another level. We ought not put the barriers up and classify people based on what we see externally or even what may be the bumper sticker on the back of their car or the placard in the grass in front of their house. <laughs> funniest picture every time my wife and I went to the Heron Hospital. <laughs> when you make a left turn to go down to the Heron Hospital, there were two houses. It was a joke to me. One house on the right, plastered with Trump signs. The house on the left, plastered with Biden signs. And it's like, love thy neighbor as thyself. No. <laughs> And I'm thinking, so we stop and take, every time he passed it, there were more signs, bigger flags, more placards. And I'm thinking, when this is over, you guys need to have a barbecue, maybe? Get back together and remember what it was like before these two guys came around. Amen? Love your neighbor. We, want, we have one of the highest privilege of sharing the gospel with people that don't agree with us. Our message has to appeal to both sides of the aisle. But we cannot accomplish a divine mission on carnal terms. We've got to do it on Jesus' terms. Why? When you look at how clever the devil is, he is seeking to do among us what he has always done. Taken religion and divided rather than united. And deception is not blatant. It's not overt. It's always 
concealed. It's always covert. He never tells you what he's going to do. He just listens to your conversation and shovels his garbage your way. Satan never informs you of his intentions. He just listens to the things that make your eyes twinkle and your heart jump. And like heavy rain, heavy rain, he seeps into the cracks in your window. And before you know it, he's on the inside of the house. Not any different. That's how the Jews were. The Jews betrayed Jesus for alliance with the political arm of Rome. Then during the Dark Ages, politics and religion merged even more intently. And the Bible informs us that in the last days, in the last days, we, according to Revelation 13, are going to be confronted by a religio-political system. Are we shocked that things are the way they are, that politics and religion can seem so corrupt and yet seem to have the label? But Isaiah said that's what's going to happen. He said on Isaiah 4, verse 1, In that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying we will eat our own bread. We will wear our own apparel, meaning our own doctrines, bread, our own apparel, our own standard of righteousness. Then he says, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. When the name of Christ is not followed by the character of Christ, it is a reproach to the name and the mission of Christ. So here's the question. Question number one, who are we? Who are we? Ask me the question. Here's the answer. First Peter 2 verse 9. Don't forget, this is not who you are because of your political party. This is who you are because of Jesus. First Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen generation. The word there, chosen in the Greek, means elected. You've been elected. The Lord elected you to be that. You are a chosen generation. What else are you, my brother? A royal priesthood. What else are you, my sister? A holy nation. His own special people. Who are you? Why has he elected you? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of what? Darkness into his what? Marvelous light. You cannot find marvelous light in politics. You can only find marvelous light in Jesus. Help me, somebody. The purpose of politics is to lie better than the other guy. If I can lie better than him, you'll believe my lie and not his lie. What politician has ever told you and followed through on everything he said? And if you say he did, you are lying to yourself. He fulfilled everything he promised. Lie. The only one that fulfilled everything he promised is Jesus. His promises are sure. Not, not steeped in jargon. Well, that's not really what he meant. We must remember that in the sight of God, we are chosen for a purpose, royal for a purpose, holy for a purpose, special for a purpose. Don't allow that purpose to be behind the line you stand in, but behind the man you stand with. The man in the middle. Only participate in that which will keep your light on. You have a right to vote, but never allow your voting to hinder your witness or create division with your brother or your sister.
I like the way that Pastor Jeff Schultz said it. He is a pastor of the Evangelical Free Congregation, and he also contributed to this article about the purple, the purple, the purple church and the blue and red Christians. He said, <clears throat> hopefully, we can acknowledge that in any election, it's not pure good versus pure evil, white hats versus black hats, Schultz said. Our identity is in what? Truth. And the ultimate truth is the God who doesn't fit neatly into any political categories. I love that. <laughs> God, ain't, God ain't going to the polls. And we sometimes twist scriptures. Well, he sets them up and brings them down. Well, Hitler reigned all throughout Europe. God didn't set him up. God didn't set up Idi Amin Dada either. We have, we have the opportunity. When you have these nations of dictatorship, God didn't set up Kim Jong-un. He allows these men to reign to reveal the evil of their hearts. But when God has a special purpose for a nation like this one, America has been raised up for a particular purpose, and that is to be the haven of rest for people regardless of what they believe. You can exist in America and have the freedom to go to the store and wear purple or blue or red. You can buy raspberry jam or grape jam. And pay for it at the same counter with the person that bought Miller Lite and Schlitz. I don't drink beer. I just remember the name. But we are so divided. We got to remember, we cannot surrender our identity to anything that hinders anyone from listening to us when we attempt to reach them for Jesus. The second question. Where do we go from here is the second question. Where do we go from here? Let's look at the story. Luke 23, verse 32 and 33. There were also, I'm now I'm in the New King James Version. The King James says two thieves. There were also two other, what's the next word? Criminals led with him to be put to death. Verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the what? Left. <laughs> Take a sip before I say what I'm going to say. When I read this in the airport, I kind of giggled to myself. Wife said, my wife says, What's, what are you thinking? I said, honey, we just, the election was just a battle between those on the right and those on the left. But the Bible says, regardless of which side they're on, they're both criminals. Amen. You could be on the right screaming all you want, or on the left screaming all you want, and I, in the eyes of heaven, you're a criminal. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thank God for the man in the middle. 
At the closing moments of our lives, criminals can say, I can't get down, and neither can I. But since we can't go down, maybe we could ask him that we can go up. When you come back to take everybody else up, can I go with you? Whether you are an ardent supporter of the right or a convict on the left, you are a criminal nonetheless in the eyes of the kingdom of God. I said you, we. We are all criminals. Nobody has done good. Because of the man in the middle, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. I love the way the story unfolds. Most important point, we are both criminals in need of a Savior. And when we need a Savior, all we got to do is look to the right or to the left. And there he is. That's why the story is amazing to me. The next verse, verse 39 of Luke chapter 23. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now, this is powerful. You know the answer. Jesus can't save himself and save us, can he, Terry? He's got to decide, I'm going to not save me because I want to save you. And I read this and I saw it in a way that I had never seen it before. And I can only contribute that, Dan, to God inspiring my mind. You see, if Jesus saved himself, he couldn't save the criminal. He couldn't have done it. He can't save himself and the criminal. That was the devil's lie. The devil was talking through one of these criminals. Now, what I want to say is the Bible didn't say which one was a criminal, left or right. I caught you guys. Both were criminals. They were both criminals. But the devil said to Christ, why don't you save yourself? And if you save yourself, you can save us too. Even in the closing moments of the battle for our salvation, the devil was trying to get Jesus to end his mission. And Jesus did not do it. He stayed there. He chose not to save himself. Here's what I got from that. Jesus had an agenda. His agenda was to save us. When your agenda, I want to say this the right way, when your agenda becomes more important than the salvation of someone else, your agenda ceases to be in harmony with heaven. Did you get that? The agenda of reason why Jesus was willing to put himself aside was because his agenda was to save the guys that are next to him. When our agenda becomes more important than the salvation of the person in front of us, then our agenda ceases to be in harmony with heaven's agenda. We, we don't have the, as Christians, we don't have the right. Well, we have the, we have the freedom but we should not claim the right. I, I think Pastor Wintley Phipps said it this way. We don't have the, 
right to do good, we, we should use our good to do right. Something to that effect. Use your vote to do right. Vote for the other person and not yourself. Are you getting me? Put that other person's life and salvation. When there are points of controversy and you both are on the opposite side, I've always said it's better to lose an argument than to lose a soul. I'm from New York. I could argue. I mean, I'd like to do that, but the reason why I don't argue with people because winning you is more important than winning the argument. And if you want to be right, you could be right, but you might lose the person. Jesus is the only person that was right and didn't lose people. But now let's see how the story ends. Because the one criminal allowed his mouth to become the conduit through which Satan tempted Jesus to end his mission. But I praise God there was one more criminal left. Luke 23, verse 40 to 42. But the other, answering, rebuked him. That's rebuked the criminal that told Jesus to get off the cross. Saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Did you grab that? Whether you are on the left or on the right, we are all under the same condemnation. <laughs> because the reality is, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. When I read that, I said, praise God. There's somebody who did nothing wrong, who alone has the right to free every one of us who has done everything wrong. And I love what he said in the next verse. I love what he said in the next verse. And by the way, this guy probably never went to church, probably never gave a Bible study, didn't pass out tracts. He probably never had a, a veggie, veggie burger. He just ended up on the cross because he was a criminal. Which says to me, Jesus doesn't need an entire evangelistic series to save someone. He just needs a willing heart. Amen, Virginia. He just needs a willing heart. I love what he said, verse 42 of Luke 23. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, this has been a tough day for us, hasn't it? You and I, I heard about you, but I just, I knew you had a series and uh, I heard about the man you gave his sight back to. I heard about, I read the newspaper article. But that day I was just too inebriated to get there. So my name is, glad to meet you. And I'm also glad to meet you at this moment in my life. Because I heard what you've been able to do for other folk, Ron. I heard you raise dead people. I heard you defeat the demons that came against you. I heard you gave sight to the blind. You freed those who were bound for 38 years. He said, do you think you have one more, one more place? Do you think you have room for one more? 
If you do, could you, could you do me the biggest favor? Could you just remember me when you come into your kingdom? I don't need a house. I don't need a car. I don't need money. don't need new sneakers. I just want to know that when this body can no longer hang, I don't know where I'm going to be buried. My family don't even talk to me anymore because of the crimes I committed, but I just want you to remember me. You see, brethren, if the Christian is living out his or her creed, our message to people that are broken and disenfranchised and are hurt by what's happening in America, we must say to them, forget about who's on the left and who's on the right. There's a man in the middle that can free you from all the plight that you have faced. There's a man that can lift your burdens in the darkest hour of our nation's history. There's a man that does not have a partisan stand. He's bipartisan. He saves the right and the left alike. He can bring you out of the tomb because when he goes in, he's got a key that he can open the door from the inside and come out. You got to say to those who are angry about what's happening in America, let your anger be vented toward the enemy who caused the division, not toward Christ who came to bring unity. We must say to those who are, whether they like this flag or that flag, whether the flag is of this candidate or that candidate, we must say, there goes a soul for the kingdom. The Son of Man has given me a mission that's in harmony with his. I want to seek and save those who are lost. I want a sticker on my car, not with the name of my favorite candidate, but with the name of my favorite Bible text. Come on, guys. We need to find creative ways to talk about Jesus. Then talk about people that have a casket that they are one day going to lay in. And there's a hole in the ground that one day they're going to be put in. And all they have is a dash between the beginning date and their ending date. But Jesus ever lives to make intercession for every one of us. I just want you to remember me when you come in your kingdom. You see, it's better to lose than to win. It's better to lose an argument than to lose a soul. But if this election has taught me anything, if it has taught me anything, is that it's time for Christians to stop arguing over finite men and start arguing in defense of the cross and the character of Christ. My brethren, Jesus made it very clear. If anyone desires to come after me, Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. If you desire to come after me, you've got to put yourself down. You've got to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross every day and you have to follow me. But I tell you, when you follow me, you are following me to an election. I want to get it now. When we follow Jesus, we're following Jesus to the polling place of the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? You see, as I was reading this sermon and as I was praying, Father, how do I bring a message like this to a close? And he says, talk to them about voting. Voting. What do you mean, voting? They've already voted by the time this sermon is done. Oh, no, no, no not, not, not that voting. This voting. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Next time you vote, 
Use it in preparation for eternity. First Peter, second Peter 1.10, therefore, brethren, be even more, what's the next word? Diligent. Before I finish, what does he mean by diligent? Read, read the benefits of eternal life. Read the liabilities of rejecting eternal life. Open the word of God and be diligent to make your mind a place where God's word is transforming your character. Be even more diligent to do what? To make your call and election what? Sure. What happens when you make your election on the side of Jesus? If you do these things, you will never what? You're not going to stumble. I want to make my election on the side of Jesus. What about you, my friends? You see, it's very clear. Our salvation is not based on who we elect. Are you ready for this? Our salvation is not based on who we elect. Our salvation is based on who elects us. Paul the Apostle says in Romans 11, verse 5, Even so then, at this present time, Whenever you read it, it's the present time. There is a remnant according to the what? The election of grace. Today, because of God's grace, we can be elected into the family of God. What do you say? We can be on the streets of gold. We can be in an eternal kingdom. There is an election. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. When all this stuff is done, when all the ballots have been counted, I only want to be in that book where my name gets called. And the Lord says to me, as he did in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4, a scripture that I've seen a thousand times, but I never really caught it. The apostle Paul says, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Ryan, the Lord elected you. Bob, Alice, honey, the Lord elected you. Jason, the Lord elected you. Iris and Dan, the Lord went to the polling booth and he saw 27 billion names and he put a check mark next to every one of them. I elect them all. I want them to be in my kingdom. I want them to be in my kingdom. The man in the middle cast his vote in favor of saving us. Ricky, Jasmine, the Lord elected you. Roger, the Lord says, I want Roger to be in my kingdom. Rosemary and Gary, the Lord elected you. Tara, God put a check mark next to your name. He's got room at the cross for you. God said, Nancy and Joe, your name is on the ballot. The devil was next in line. I said, wait, wait, let me vote first. And he said, I've elected Nancy. I've elected Joe to be in the kingdom with me. You see, brethren, today, as I stand here, 144 million votes were cast in this election that we are still in the midst of or just passed through, whatever the case may be. I don't even know which one. 144 million votes to decide who the next president is going to be.
But whoever makes it into the White House is not going to affect my salvation. Jesus is the only one that can get us from this house to the right house. 144 million votes to decide who's going to be in the White House. But it only took one vote to get us into his kingdom. Amen. One vote. And he voted in our behalf. Today, my brother and my sister, I want you to take that vote that the Lord cast in your favor and go out as ambassadors of an eternal kingdom. Go out as ambassadors of people that believe we're living in the closing hours of earth's history. Don't continue to defend people that are finite and trifling and can only breathe as long as God allows them breath. But go out and campaign for souls and say to them, you can be in the kingdom. There's room at the cross for you. I believe the person that wrote that song looked at the thief on the cross and said, well, there's room at the cross for you today, my brother, my sister. How many of you want to be in that eternal kingdom? What do we do from here? Who are we? We are special, chosen, holy. What do we do from here? We uplift the man in the middle. And if he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. You want to do that today? If that's your desire today, to uplift the man in the middle, would you stand with me as we ask for heaven's wisdom on how to come down from this roller coaster called American politics and get back in line with the agenda of that eternal kingdom? They're going to be angry people for a long time. Don't allow their anger to deter your love for them. Don't allow who they believe in, who they're fighting for, to stop you from fighting for their salvation. Because there's a man that wants them to be in their kingdom. And the only way that they'll understand how much Jesus loves them is how much we show them that we love them. Doesn't matter what side they're on. Because if the world lasts long enough, which I'm hoping the Lord comes before the next election, <laughs> I'm getting old. They may not look like it. Praise God for that. Well, I see teenagers nowadays, and I said, man, I remember using, I remember being their age. You know, when you have more time behind you than ahead of you, you want Jesus to come. Am I right? So you young folk, hold on. Don't waste your time either because you're young. Because nobody's got a guarantee for anything. Father in heaven, thank you for being the man in the middle. At the closing hours of two lives that were summarized by the nails in their hands and the nails in their feet and the inscription above their head, criminal, criminal. Thank you, Lord, for being within voice range that they can say, if there's ever a moment that I need to reach out and make sure that my future is secure, this is the moment. This is the moment. Father, today it simply boils down to the most humble request. Will you remember me when you come in your kingdom? You've done more for humanity than all politicians combined. You conquered death. You redeemed us as a fallen race. You erased our checkered, horrible past. 
And today you're building mansions for us. You're getting robes ready and crowns ready. There's a menu. And there's a place at the welcome table for us. No politician can ever guarantee that to me. Today, Father, may we look to the man in the middle, the author and the finisher of our faith. And may this remnant church with this remnant message go forth and say to people in the highways and hedges, in the hovels of this world, the downcasts, the arrogant, the proud, those who don't even know your name, may we say to them, there's room at the cross for you. And I want to be a representation of the man in the middle. So send us forth humbly, Father. We're citizens. We have a right. But help us to know that there's only one right that I'll look for, the right to the tree of life. And we thank you, Lord, for the election, for voting for us. Today, we want to keep that election and that calling sure in the person of Jesus, in your holy and precious everlasting name, we pray and thank you. Amen.